Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on the seven-day week. What is it? Where did it come from? What, what's it doing in our brains? All right, now, when we cut off in the previous part of this series about the, the week, uh, you were talking a bit about uh, some sources you were reading about the history of the week, where the, the seven-day week comes from. Because, uh, obviously, you know one of the main things we, we talked about in the last episode is that other major blocks that we use for measuring time, such as the month, the year, and the day, are all based on facts about nature, usually about astronomy, you know, how the Earth moves, uh, Earth moves around the sun, or how the moon moves around the Earth. But the week has no such uh, basis in physical reality. It's an artificial construction, with the, uh, the possible exception that some people think there may be some underlying biological uh, uh, rhythms that contribute to it. Uh, one hypothesis that's been offered is the menstrual cycle or things like that, but it, it's hard to know for sure. So we, we know at least that the week is not based in astronomy. So where does it come from historically? Yeah, and in that we were getting into this idea of the market week, uh, the time it takes for uh, vegetables or fruits to uh, to travel in from market uh, be sold at market and then for uh, the individuals who brought it there to return then to the fields. Um, this would be just a, a basic market cycle, a market week. Uh, and one of the sources that I was discussing here was um, Evitar Zerubaville's The Seven Day Circle. Um, so, you know, point, uh, the author here points to the 10 day market week of ancient southern China, various other systems as well, um, because again, uh, there's nothing set in stone about it taking seven days to reach uh, any given market anywhere in the world. It's going to vary, obviously. Uh, so you have you have different systems that were in place. You know, this 10-day system. We also see the eight-day system that emerged in what is now Italy. This is the Etruscan system. And so the Etruscan system, that, that the name of that would come from the Etruscan culture, a, a culture that uh, inhabited the Italian peninsula before the Roman period. Right. And then the Romans would, of course, inherit the Etruscan system, and this eventually became the uh, Internudinum Tempus, or the period between the Ninth Day Affairs, which uh, Zerubbabel writes involves the Roman practice of inclusive counting, in which the last day of one cycle is the first day of the next. So this involves a market day held every eight days. Market and social life revolved around this market day, and schools and courts were closed for that day as well. It was also a day to set work aside, to go to the baths, um, and the cap limit for guests was raised as well. So you could have more people over on this market day. Mm. Now, the decline of the eight-day week, uh, the author writes, coincided with the expansion of Rome. It simply became too big for this system to logistically work anymore. Uh, and you know, this comes down to the fact that a, a true urban economy ends up demanding continuous commerce. But this, this was interesting as well. Uh, I'm going to read a quote uh, from the seven-day uh, circle here. Uh, quote, Coincidentally, the astrological and Christian seven-day weeks that had just been introduced into Rome were also becoming increasingly popular. There is evidence indicating that the Roman eight-day week and those two seven-day cycles were used simultaneously for some time. 
However, the coexistence of two weekly rhythms that were entirely out of phase with one another obviously could not be sustained for long. One of them clearly had to give way. As we all know, it was the eight-day week that soon disappeared from the pages of history forever. (laughs) Okay, so you're positing a time here where there exist such things as weeks, sort of like the weeks we imagine, but not everybody's using the same weeks at the same Mm -hmm. time. So they're just sort of like overlapping different systems that different people are using, which sounds incredibly chaotic and not especially useful. Yeah, yeah, because it's 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 hard to ex- exactly imagine what this would have been like because we think the the week is just set in stone. It's just this this grid work uh, that arranges our lives. But to in and then I'm tempted to try and think of it. Well, maybe it would be like using both uh, you know pounds and uh, uh, and and, uh, and grams or something. You know, having to to use two different systems of measurement. But it's not quite that either because no. be, because there's still like you know there's still a certain length to um, uh, you know, to, to a, a, some fencing or a carrot, et cetera. Um, but, but when you're dealing with, uh, with time here and you're dealing with these market cycles, it, it seems like you would just, you know, it would just be this confusing arrangement to have these uh, two or more overlapping systems of different, uh, uh, different amounts of time. Well, I'd say a big difference is that, say, if you're converting from standard to metric, there's a mm-hmm. fixed conversion rate. It's not yeah. like the, how many pints go into a liter changes every day. Right. But if you but if you have weeks of different numbers of days and everybody's not on the same one, you can't just line it up and say, "Oh, okay, this day in our cycle is the is this other day in somebody else's cycle." It would change every cycle because they're not the same numbers. Right. Like imagine, <laughs> like thinking back on. Uh, on like TV, uh, uh, just like TV programs and TV schedules. Like what if NBC and CBS um, had not only like different um, schedules of what's coming out, but they had different calendars, like different days of the week. Like one did an eight-day cycle and the other one did a seven-day cycle. Like that would be, that would be incredibly confusing, you know, trying to figure out like what, what is on what day and what is opposite another show. <laughs> It, it's it's it just again it's it's uh, it's interesting to try and imagine what this would have been like. Uh, but if I'm understanding Zerubbabel right in this quote, uh, what he's saying is that um, so you had this original sort of eight day cycle, the Etruscan system that was inherited by the Romans, but then you had these other systems of seven day weeks, the the astrological, the Roman astrological seven day week, and the Christian seven day week, which I believe would be inherited. Uh, at least in part from the uh, from the Jewish Sabbath observance. Yeah, that that all this being said, it is important to realize that there is a, still a reality to a market week cycle. Like in many cases, you know, if other for- forces haven't changed what's happening with people actually bringing in crops and, and the and the economic activities surrounding the sale of those crops, um, then. Even if you end up uh, adopting, say, a seven-day week, uh, you can still see these other market cycles uh, coexisting with it. And and he he points to some examples of this. He points out that uh, both Christian and Islamic use of the seven-day week heavily influenced uh, the continent of Africa. But you still see four-day market cycles in parts of Africa as well as eight and 16 day weeks as well. So these economic rhythms in many cases still remain. Um, or even if those economic rhythms shift, like they're still not going to necessarily, uh, you know, conform completely to the seven day week cycle that has been superimposed on a region. Hmm. 
Now, he, he points to an, uh, s- some other weak cycles uh, that, are, that are pretty interesting. He points, uh, uh, for instance, to the 19-day Baha'i cycle of social and religious activity that was introduced in 1844 by the Persian prophet uh, Sayyid Ali Muhammad, uh, also known as Bab, uh, B-A-B, uh, it's generally uh, spelled in English. Uh, 19 is apparently a mystical number in the Baha'i faith. And we see that in the use of uh, a 19-week year in the Baha'i faith, as well as a 19-year Vahid. Um, and then 361 years make a Kulashe, and that's because 19 times 19 equals 361. Uh, mm. So um, uh, all that's interesting as well. Here's an entire system that's based on uh, 19 for mystical purposes, uh, uh, spiritual purposes, uh, similar uh, to the uh, the adoption of the seven uh, within uh, you know the, uh, the the cycle that we 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 know and are immersed in. Uh, he also mentions that the uh, the Maya, on the other hand, used a twenty day um, unal, which was the uh, quote cornerstone of the entire Maya time measuring system. Uh, the Mayan and the Aztec solar calendars consisted of 365 days, made up essentially of 18 20-day weeks plus five blank days. Uh, they also had a 260-day uh, divination calendar year that was used exclusively for divination. There was also a 9th-century Indonesian system that he mentions that they made use of both a five-day market week, six, uh, five, and seven-day weeks were used then to chronicle events. And the Indonesian system uh, had several uses, but the main function, according to Zerubbabel, was divination. Uh, There were the right days to do various things, both inherently sacred things, such as, say, burying the dead, and things that we might think of in in a sort of modern life as being mundane, things like moving or starting a new business. But of course, within the confines of a given culture, those things too may be considered highly sacred. So these are more examples of the what we talked about in the last episode, which is that you know it it, it depends on how you define a week to say where the week comes from because there's a you, there's a history you can track of our current unbroken system of seven day cycles, but there also have been just lots of other things throughout the world throughout history that subdivided the month into some number of days, but it wasn't necessarily the same as our seven day week. Right. And and I think it's interesting to think about how, on, on one hand, you have very practical, very real-world considerations in arranging these days into weeks uh, and, and saying, well, I need to know what we're calling four days from today. I need to know what we're calling eight days from today so that I can plan things out. Mm-hmm. But then also getting into this divination area of, well, is there something about the day after tomorrow that makes it more appropriate for me to do this uh, act or this other act or to make a certain decision on that day. Um, And you kind of get into the sort of the roots of divination that we've discussed on the show before, where it becomes this kind of um, system that, uh, you know, it it certainly entails supernatural ideas about seeing into the future and using, employing luck uh, and, uh, and, you know, perhaps the, uh, the, you know, the goodwill of various deities, but it also is about like making, uh, making space for decision and like helping mm-hmm. decisions be made and, and, and in introducing randomness in some cases. Yeah. Well, actually it got me w- wondering about the same thing about whether a cycle of days in a week, whether that's seven days or whatever other number, just having a named day within the cycle could aid in productivity and in spurring action uh, mm-hmm. instead, as opposed to say deferring action forever. Because if you, 
live in a system where you don't have named days within a cycle, uh, again, I, I don't know this, I don't have direct evidence of it, but I wonder if that sort of just um, would allow you to have, well, you have right now, and then maybe you have a concept like tomorrow, and then mm-hmm. beyond that, you've just got the future. And so, like, it, it does having a named day that's, you know, a predictable number of days ahead of now uh, allow you to plan action in a way that uh, you're more likely to follow through on and execute? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of some studies that I've I've seen about um, the importance of having deadlines uh, just for productivity reasons. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, to a certain extent, I guess this varies depending on what one's you know, job is, what one's industry is, but the basic seven-day week kind of has a built-in deadline. Like Friday is, at least to a certain extent, always a deadline. Like it's it, it, assuming, again, that you have a, a job where uh, you, you don't have to work on Saturday and Sunday. Like that's the last day of the week. So in many cases, you're trying to get something done. You're trying to reach like some level of finality, right? Or at least it leans, it's, it, uh, it allows you to lean into that interpretation anyway. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, at least it gives you a principle on which to organize those yeah. those timelines. I mean, again, I wonder, like, if we didn't have weeks and we just, you know, just worked whenever and you were like, uh, how long is it going to take me to do this? I mean, how, how long do we say? We would usually say, I don't know, one week, two weeks. <laughs> and what would you say? I'm going to say 13 days is how long it'll take me. Yeah. <laughs> There's something weird about like a 13-day estimate on something, right? Oh, like yeah. Why, why not bump it up to 14 uh, yeah. days? Like it would, it would seem equally wrong to give a 15-day estimate on something. Like why is it taking two weeks in one day? Why can't it just take two weeks? <laughs> that just seems like trolling. Yeah. Well, maybe here is a good place to come back to some psychology research about the effects of the week, because in the previous episode, I mentioned a 2015 psychology paper that looked into what it called mental representations of weekdays. This was by Ellis et al. And we talked about it in the context of the idea that while the week is broken into different types of days, weekends and weekdays, each day is also its own distinct concept. And this 2015 paper examined this in a number of ways. Overall, I'd say its findings would be not very surprising to anybody who's ever been to school or had a full-time job that was organized on regular bank hours. Mm-hmm. But it's good to have that information anyway, because a lot of times, uh, you know, I, I often have this thought where like you do a study and then the results come back and people say like, that's obvious. Why'd you need to do a study to know that? Oh, it's like, well, because if you, <laughs> if you just go by your assumptions all the time, you're actually going to turn out to be wrong a good bit. So it's mm-hmm. worth checking. Uh, but it did find that, uh, for example, people were most conscious of what day it was on Mondays and on Fridays, as measured by reaction times when asked to name the day. It found that people were most likely to feel like it was the wrong day, feel like it was a different day than it was on days that were in the midweek, so Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursdays. That's also not very surprising. Those are sort of the, the middle days, the days that are you know easy to get lost in the shuffle. It found that in terms of affective response, people really, really like Fridays and really dislike Mondays. And the other days in between basically just kind of slope up and down between those extremes. And, of course, the standard note that these responses, as well as the ones in the um, uh, studies I'm about to mention here, are are primarily, I think, from industrialized societies in North America and Europe where the seven-day work week is highly salient. I have no way to prove it, but I – 
strongly suspect that you would not find these same patterns at all if you were to exclusively survey populations that were less connected to this type of of economic work cycle. For example, Mm -hmm. uh, rural farmers or hunter-gatherers. Right. Uh, But since then, I I just wanted to talk about a bunch more studies I was looking at uh, about the days of the week and and how we represent them in our brains, how we feel about them, and how they affect our behavior. Uh, So a couple that I looked at had to do with people's feelings about days of the week, following up on that idea from the, the previous study that people like Fridays, they don't like Mondays. So one study I looked at was from 2011, published in Psychological Reports by Charles S. Arany, Mitchell Berger, and Natalina Zlatevska called Factors Affecting the Extent of Monday Blues, Evidence from a Meta-Analysis. This was a meta-analysis that looked at a bunch of samples from previous studies that tracked both mood and days of the week and tried to see if there were correlations. And they said they did find evidence of a small but reliable, quote, Monday blues effect. So people had worse moods on Mondays. But the size of the effect varied greatly depending on what types of uh, demographic groups featured in the sample. So for contrast, they mentioned that samples focused on university students showed a large and consistent Monday blues effect. College students really hated Mondays. Whereas samples limited to a smaller, different cohort, uh, the one they single out is married men who were not students, showed a smaller effect. It was still there, but much smaller and with greater variation between the samples. Rob, does this track with your experience that you hated Mondays more when you were like a college student or, or younger in general? Yeah, yeah, and it... I mean, it's it's easy to sort of fall on on sort of stereotypes uh, when thinking about this. You know, you think of like the college student is is out partying all weekend, and then oh, then they've got to go to class Monday morning, and uh, and the the married adult is maybe not partying all weekend. Um, yeah, I um, I don't I, I don't think I, I ever remembered necessarily just hating Mondays, but if I if I didn't like my job, then I was probably adverse to to going back on Monday to work there. I feel like nowadays, though, uh, like Monday, I, I really don't have a problem with in large part because I feel like I'm actually well rested on a Monday, whereas mm. I'm le- I'm less I'm not that I'm I'm like losing a lot of sleep, but during the course of the week, I feel like I kind of steadily lose a little bit of sleep towards the end. So by Fridays, I'm a little more worn out. Um, And then I catch up on my sleep over the weekend and by Monday, I'm good to go. Yeah, that's something I think might be underappreciated, especially when it gets to a study we'll look at in a minute on – on, on behavior, the, the effects of cumulative fatigue over the course of weekdays. I think that Mm. that is a, a very good idea. But okay, so so that was that one study. Uh, another one I looked at was by uh, Stone, Schneider, and Harder, uh, published in 2012 in the Journal of Positive Psychology. This one used a huge telephone survey with like hundreds of thousands of participants uh, tested for demographic variables and how people felt about different days of the week. They found, again, unsurprisingly, a strong preference for weekends. People really, really love Fridays. They like weekends. Uh, this study found weaker evidence that people really hate Mondays. Uh, it was it was a more reduced Monday blues effect, but they, they did find some variations. This one also found that day of the week effects on mood in general were more pronounced in younger people generally. 
and that day of the week had less effect on mood for older people and especially retired people. So that might not be surprising because I think a lot of these uh, day of the week effects probably have to do with when you have to go to work. Uh, they found no differences on the basis of gender or on the basis of uh, the presence of a romantic partner. Now, it, it does seem strange that there wouldn't be much uh, emphasis put on Wednesday, though, because it seems like like Wednesday is hump day, right? Like Wednesday is the day where you may uh, you know, feel the satisfaction of knowing that, the, the, that, you're, that you're halfway there. Uh, you're, you're more than halfway there. You are over the hump and headed in towards that Friday that you're looking forward to. You want scientific confirmation of hump day. Hump day confirmed. Yeah. It's like if hump day is, I mean, this kind of, we come into our assumptions, right? I have yeah. these assumptions about hump days, but if those assumptions are not borne out in, uh, in the data, then, uh, then maybe it's just a, like a silly notion anyway. Well, there may be some ways in which hump day is a salient effect, but it just kind of gets lost in the noise of this mm. this big study with a bunch of other things going on. Maybe it doesn't show up, just fades into the noise when you're asking people, how do you feel about today, about this day of the week, or how do you feel today uh, on the day that I'm asking you this, as opposed to other more targeted questions that may pull out the hump dayness of hump day. Hmm. Maybe questions about like optimism about the future or something. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you could ask uh, another question. Again, we've been talking about well, what's obvious or what we, we would just assume. But here's another question that seems like it has an obvious answer. Why do people seem to like weekends so much more than weekdays? I think, I think both common intuition as well as some of the data we've looked at already would tell us it's because people like being off work. Uh, though interestingly, of course, not everybody's work hours conform to the standard Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. And some people... And some people also, you know, even if they do conform to that, really enjoy their work. But at least at the population level, this effect shows up strongly anyway. So I don't know if, you know, if people who are restaurant servers whose busiest work is on the weekends or something like that, if they're just not enough of them to balance out the survey data, or maybe somehow, even though it's their busy work times, they they, they prefer weekends as well. I don't know. I, I haven't found data on that. But this question of what causes people to enjoy weekends the most has also been analyzed in some psychology research, uh, sometimes referred to as the weekend effect. And I was looking at a study from 2010 in the Journal of Social and Clinical Psychology by Ryan, Bernstein, and Brown called Weekends, Work, and Well-Being, Psychological Need Satisfactions, and the Day of the Week Effects on Mood, Vitality, and Physical Symptoms. Uh, this held true for all different kinds of jobs, uh, no, no matter you know what kind of work you had. In general, on average, people like weekends better than weekdays, and uh, and not just like them better. Like that, they reported say uh, fewer physical aches and pains on the weekends, and uh, reported feeling th this. I'm, th I thought this was really interesting. People reported that they generally felt more quote competent on weekends than weekdays. You might assume the opposite would be true. That people feel like okay, I'm competent at my job, so I'm competent on weekdays, but. No, people felt competent on the weekends. Hmm. Maybe that's just because, I don't know, jobs are overwhelming or because the nature of work is often such that it interferes with your ability to do your job as well as you could be doing it. Uh, but anyway, this study looked at different factors that could be influencing why people have such a strong preference for weekends. And the researchers concluded that the most important factors were probably two one of them is the ability to spend quality time with friends and family, with loved mm -hmm. ones. 
And the other is the freedom to choose one's own activities. People like self-determination in what activities they engage in. So you might imagine a scenario where somebody is off work for the weekend. They don't have to go to their job, but they don't get to spend quality time with loved ones. And their time is taken up with some kind of obligatory activity that they don't choose themselves. And in that case, it might not actually feel like a weekend at all. It might be just as bad as work or worse. I know I have this experience. I can get really down about like a weekend that is just jammed up with unwanted obligatory activities. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and I, I know for my own part, like there are things like, for instance, listening to music. Uh, I might, I, I, I almost certainly listen to music more on my own during the work week uh, just because I'm plugged in uh, you know, more or and in some cases or at least in the past, you know, I've, I've been commuting. And so there'll be more sort of designated media time during the commute. And then on the weekends, you don't have that. So not, 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 not that that necessarily you know, pushes weekend good or bad, but it certainly gives it a slightly different flavor. There, there are things that the weekend cannot offer that the, uh, that the, that the normal weekdays do. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I don't know, the ability to determine one's own activities and the ability to spend quality time with loved ones. Whenever that happens, it seems like those are are major factors that increase people's feeling of well-being along multiple axes. Um, But it just so happens that those things on average happen the most on weekends for people. But, you know, individual mileage may vary. But, but while the previous results might be pretty obvious, you could also imagine that there could be other effects of the seven-day week on human psychology, and particularly on behavior. Now, again, these would be highly dependent on a person's economic and cultural surroundings, because as we talked about in the last episode, basically all the evidence indicates that the seven-day week is, is not a fact of nature, but, but a mental technology, something we have created. So it'll depend on what kind of week you use and what the week uh, is used for in the place where you live. A couple of random examples that have been observed over the years that uh, I wanted to point out. So One is the question of, does the stock market behave differently depending on what day of the week it is, other factors being equal? Uh, This one doesn't seem totally clear. It, it, It looks to me like some studies looking into this have found a correlation. Others have have not or have argued that the correlations that have been found can be explained away. Um, but just as one example of, of a study that did find a correlation and said it couldn't be explained away, there was uh, Gibbons and Hess from the Journal of Business in 1981. Uh, the article was titled Day of the Week Effects and Asset Returns. And this found against prediction that expected returns for stocks and bills on Mondays were lower than for other days of the week or perhaps sometimes even negative. Hmm. And they were just like, we don't know how to explain this. We don't know of what factor would would explain this. Another example uh, I found in a paper by uh, Ellis and Jenkins published in uh, PLOS One in 2012. I know for many years I've been calling this journal PLOS One. A lot of people say it that way. But I just read an article uh, saying that the, the pronunciation, of course, that stands for Public Library of Science, but... Uh, so it is an acronym, but uh, but they say PLOS, rhyming with floss. So from now on, I'm huh. going to try to remember to, to floss like PLOS. PLOS instead of P-L-O-S. Yeah. But how about PLOS? <laughs> Sometimes it's kind of, it, since we have like often a, like a capital P, lowercase L-O, then capital S, seems like that would be uh PLOS. as well. PLOS. I know now that I've said it, I'm going to get it wrong in the future and look stupid. PLOS, 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 like floss. Okay, so PLOS1. 
Uh, the, the article was titled Weekday Effects Attendance Rate for Medical Appointments, Large-Scale Data Analysis and Implications. This study examined over 4.5 million hospital appointment records from Scotland between 2008 and 2010, and it definitely found a trend. They found that the, uh, the did-not-attend rate was, quote, highest for Mondays, 11%, and lowest for Fridays, 9.7%, and decreased monotonically over the week. So it went down over the week until it got to the lowest on Fridays. And in keeping with the trend, we've we've seen a few uh, times here that there may be a day-of-week effects difference by age. This study found that the pattern was steeper for younger age groups than for older ones. Hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's, one is tempted to fall back on stereotypes there as well and say, well, maybe younger people are less concerned about about uh, health matters uh, versus older people. But that's those are generalities, and I'm not sure if we can really uh, lean too heavily on those. But why would that affect today of the week? I mean, it would still it would mean that younger people are less concerned about health matters, maybe on Mondays, Tuesdays, and so, but they get more concerned as the week they, goes on. They've been partying all weekend, I guess. I don't know, but oh, uh, I know that that even as a as an adult, um, I, uh, I there have been times where I I, I I reach Sunday and then I say I look at the calendar. It's like, all right, what's coming up this week? What did I? What did I, uh, you know, put in the books for uh, the the week ahead? And then I'll see, oh, oh, I have a dental appointment on Monday, and I and there might be a temptation to want to rearrange that just because you know the the, the nature of the Monday is that you know you, you, maybe you're not maybe you're not excited about Monday, or maybe you are excited about actually getting some work done on on Monday, kicking the week off right, and it doesn't feel appropriate maybe to then uh, spend an hour or more somewhere else, even if it is something important like a medical appointment. I know exactly what you're talking about, man. When you know you're scheduling six months out at the dentist yeah. or something, and you're like, uh, "Yeah, Monday, that sounds good." And then it's that Sunday, and you're like, "Oh no, I can't." Why did do I that. do this? Yeah. yeah, I should have put it on a Thursday. Mm-hmm. The uh, two examples I was just talking about of uh, possible weekly fluctuations in human behavior uh, with the stock markets and with uh, missed appointments, missed medical appointments. Those were both mentioned in the background of a paper from 2016, which I want to talk about because uh, I I found it interesting. And this paper uh, experimentally explored a unifying concept that might explain a number of weekly changes in behavior patterns. And that explanation would be in risk tolerance. So this paper is by Jet G. Sanders and Rob Jenkins, published in PLOS One in 2016, uh, called uh, Weekly Fluctuations in Risk Tolerance and Voting Behavior. And so the authors of this paper point out several observed trends in human behavior across days of the week, including the two I mentioned a minute ago with stocks and, and medical appointments. But they also point out things as serious as rates of attempted suicide. There are there are. Uh, you know, you can observe trends throughout the week in all kinds of human behaviors. But they argue that despite these observations, there has not yet been a unified psychological explanation for them. There's not one uh, explanation that people have been able to give yet that would say, here's why we're observing these trends. And in this paper, the authors hypothesize that one psychological factor which could influence a wide range of behaviors by fluctuating throughout the week is risk tolerance. Now, they did multiple studies to look at this, but the first one that was like a direct lab study I thought was interesting because it involved a computer game that is designed to measure risk tolerance, and this is called the BART test. 
BART is an acronym. It stands for Balloon Analog Risk Task. And uh, as with a lot of these psychological tools, so the BART is really designed to try to reduce or eliminate the influence of other variables to get as close as possible to testing just the factor in question, in this case, risk tolerance. And the test works like this, okay? So, Rob, you imagine you sit down at a computer, and uh, you've been told in advance that you're going to play a computer game that will lead to a variable cash payout at the end. You're going to get some money by playing this game. Mm-hmm. But the money depends on your performance. And so the game works like this. In the game, you have a series of 20 balloons that you get to inflate one at a time. So you start on the first balloon and you press a button, I think space bar, to inflate this cartoon balloon. And every time you press the button, there is a money value contained in the balloon that goes up. So say it's increasing by a penny every time you hit the space bar. So you're hitting the space, you're increasing your payout. But as you keep inflating the balloon, you get closer and closer to some randomized point where the balloon will pop. And if you reach that point and the balloon pops, you lose all the money you've earned so far. It all goes away. So what you're trying to do is inflate it as much as you can without it popping. And then then you're going to do something called banking it, which means you say, okay, I'm done with this balloon. I'm not going to inflate it anymore. I'll just take whatever money is in there now. Yeah, and there's some. I've seen some stills of what these uh, these simple games tend to look like, and they tend to be very simple because it's not about believing that you're looking at a balloon. It's about like the the basic risk. Like, do do I risk it now? Do I risk it now? But you you find a similar mechanic in some games as well, uh, where there'll be something on the line, and do you keep pushing it? Do you keep holding, or do you go ahead and cash out? It's the basic double down principle. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, a game like this is a, is a pretty good attempt to isolate risk tolerance as, as its own variable. Like the, there's, th- that's pretty much directly what it's testing. There's not a lot else that you could imagine is going into this. So every single moment of the game, you can either gamble by inflating the balloon more, p- potentially increasing your ultimate payout, but also risking losing everything you've, you've gotten on this balloon so far, or you can bank it and, and keep that money and start the next balloon. The obvious correlation is that people with a lower risk tolerance at the time they're playing the game will tend to bank balloons earlier and protect the gains they've already made, whereas people with a higher risk tolerance while they're playing the game will tend to keep inflating to make the payouts bigger, you know, with the increased risk of losing the whole pot. And, and of course, you know, uh, risk tolerance is going to vary to some degree by by like fixed personality traits. Like some people are just more risk tolerant than other people uh, across the board, but then it, it's also going to vary moment to moment by but within a person. So a person might have a generally high, low or average risk tolerance, but other factors, I don't know, maybe if you give somebody a few alcoholic beverages, their risk tolerance probably goes up. Mm. This is why casinos like to give people free drinks. Yeah. And apparently the, the BART test has, uh, has been shown to predict real world risk taking in domains like health and economics. So it seems like this is probably a pretty good test. People who take more risks in the game also take more risks in real life. So in this study, they they played this game with a number of controls in place to try to isolate day of the week as the only relevant difference. Uh, Now, a caveat, the sample size on the study was not huge. It was 25 players across five sessions each, so a total of 125 BARTs. Um, So I I wouldn't put too much confidence on this result until I see it confirmed in follow-ups. But the study did find an effect, and it was an interesting one, one that is not exactly what I would have predicted. 
Because Rob, if you had to guess in terms of risk tolerance fluctuations during the week, what what would you guess? The day that one would take the, the most risks? The most and the least. Mm, I would say most on Friday, least on Monday. I would guess exactly the same thing. I would think that people are most risk tolerant on Friday and Saturday. Those are the YOLO days. That's canonical. <laughs> and people would probably mean the most risk risk averse on Mondays. You know, that's like the hunker down and get through this day. Mm-hmm. But strangely, this is not exactly what the researchers found. It's, uh, there's some partial overlap with what we just guessed. So first of all, they did not test on weekends. We don't have data on Saturdays and Sundays. They were just testing variations between weekdays. And they found that risk tolerance, so people were willing to take the most risks to inflate the balloons the most, on Fridays and Mondays. But then after Mondays, risk tolerance went down and then it reached its lowest average on Thursdays. Hmm. So that was a huh moment for me. I, I don't know. Like Thursdays are supposed to sort of blend in with the other midweek days. They're very similar to Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Why would people be the most cautious, the most averse to taking risks on Thursdays? I mean, maybe it comes down to just sort of the, the finish line view of the calendar week where it's like, all right, on Thursday, uh, you know, I'm over the hump. I'm coming in towards the finish. I, I need to actually get some stuff done today. I need to. <laughs> I don't need to take a bunch of risks uh, tomorrow. Maybe when the the finish line is in sight, I'll feel riskier. But today is all business. That's just a guess. I don't know. Uh, I think there might be something to that. I mean, uh, we can talk about a few options here. Well, I guess first, let's talk about what the authors themselves offer as as their preferred explanation. Um, so for one thing, they hypothesize in their introduction that if risk tolerance varies throughout the week, it might be related to mood, since previous studies have found that mood has an influence on decision-making. And uh, I, I thought this part was also strange because the link between mood and risk tolerance is counterintuitive to me, but they cite uh, multiple studies, existing research showing that on average, People are more risk tolerant, so they'll take more risks when experiencing certain negative moods, such as sadness. So apparently people experiencing sadness are more likely to inflate the balloon higher, take more risks, whereas people experiencing happiness are more likely to be cautious and risk averse. This is another thing that's kind of the, the opposite of what I would have guessed from a gut feeling, though in looking at the research they cite, I guess it sort of makes sense maybe that like feelings of sadness or despair can lead to a a what what do I have to lose kind of thinking. Right, right. And if you're optimistic, you're like, well, why should I be taking a risk? Tomorrow's Friday. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I can bank this up. balloon. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. It's fine. So so that's kind of surprising already. But anyway, this fact uh, would partially match the results they found in the balloon game because – Okay, you assume people are generally in the worst mood on Mondays. A lot of studies have found that. And then their mood gets gradually better throughout the week and then gets to its highest point on Friday. This would track with their finding that people take the most risks on Mondays and then get more and more cautious up to Thursday, though then on Friday that correlation breaks. Because if the same pattern held, people should actually be the most cautious on Fridays, have the lowest risk tolerance on Fridays because that's when they're in the best mood, but that's not what happens. Friday looks more kind of like the YOLO day that you and I would have guessed. It's it's on par with Mondays in terms of having high risk tolerance. 
So the authors explain this by saying, uh, quote, the Friday recovery suggests that risk tolerance may track prospective mood more closely than it tracks current mood. On this account, risk tolerance is lowest on Thursday because that is when the most rewarding part of the week is imminent. When gain is expected, change is resisted, risk aversion. When loss is expected, change is welcomed, risk tolerance. And I don't know, on this, I'm kind of halfway there on that explanation that, that makes a certain kind of sense to me. But then again, isn't Friday already the highest mood because of prospective analysis? Like Friday itself is prospective happiness. People who who work jobs with Monday to Friday schedules still have to go to work on Friday, but we love Fridays because we are thinking about the weekend being ahead of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and unless it creeps even further back in the week here, and like so, basically, you're uh, you're most optimistic on Thursday because it's about to be Friday. <laughs> and then, of course, when it's actually Friday, maybe there are some realizations that, well, you know, Friday is just another day, and, <laughs> and uh, it's uh, there's nothing magical about it. Maybe, yeah. I, I don't know. I, th- I think this is curious. I would say if, if more people test the same thing, if the same pattern the authors found here holds up in other studies, I would wonder if it's indicative of a multivariable input, like maybe improving mood explains decreasing risk tolerance throughout the week. But then when Friday comes, some other psychological influence takes over. I, I don't know what that would be, but it sort of overwhelms the, the effect of mood on risk tolerance. Hmm. Uh, but but yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's sometimes it's it's hard for humans to live in the moment. Uh, like I, I think about uh, like the, the ramp up to Halloween. You spend all of October moving towards Halloween and getting into the Halloween spirit and, and all. Sometimes I've found that when it's actually Halloween – it's still a lot of fun, but there's also the 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 you know the the, the, the sadness that Halloween is about to be over that uh, yeah. that, that there's going to be this sharp cutoff and now it's November and now all these other factors are in play. I know exactly what you're talking about there with two octobophiles here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I feel like I get the most pleasure in like the first two weeks of October. Yeah, because then it's like there's so much October still ahead of us. Yeah. But then again, I don't know if this really, if this can really relate to the the week by week experience. But yeah, I don't know. Now another interesting thing uh, that goes along with this, I was reading a short article by one of the authors of this study, uh, Rob Jenkins, and he also said that uh, the same pattern was borne out in uh, analyses of historical chess games that the they. Um, had done an analysis of uh, big archives of chess games and tried to quantify risky moves within those games and then correlate that with what day of the week the games took place on. And they found, they say they found the same thing that uh, moves got uh, uh, more and more cautious on the, on the trend from Monday to Thursday. So, you know, riskier moves on Monday and then Thursday, very conservative playing. And then Friday, suddenly risky moves again. Hmm. Though that was not a part of this paper. Uh, That was just something I'd I'd read the author talking about. Uh, But within this same paper, uh, the authors also looked at how days of the week correlated with voting preferences as expressed in opinion polls on a couple of big issues in um, in UK politics in recent years, Scottish independence and Brexit. And uh, for the moment, I think I'm not going to focus on that because I feel like those kinds of issues have they're so noisy with real world data and so full of variables that are hard to control for. Uh, and of course, the authors are aware of this. They, they make note of it. But uh, I feel like that that may be 
harder to fix on day of the week effects and, and things like risk aversion, because especially when you're looking at something like a big contentious political issue, like a huge part of political rhetoric is specifically aimed at manipulating how people frame political and voting choices in terms of risk. So Mm -hmm. it's hard to pick one side of a political issue and say, well, this is the one that's the more risk averse option. And the other one is the one that's more risk tolerant because there may be lots of cases where voters on opposite sides of an issue in roughly equal proportions, both believe their side to be the less risky one. Yeah, it's going to depend on on what sort of media you're consuming. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, one side's going to frame this is the obviously the risky choice, and the other side's going to say no, this is the this is the risk uh, adverse choice. Though they point out something interesting that does rely on a couple of conditionals. So if if their finding is indeed true, if it is borne out that people's risk tolerance on average fluctuates throughout the week. And if it's true that there are consistent patterns that show up in populations, such as Thursday being consistently the most cautious day, the most risk averse day, then what day you hold elections or referenda on could actually affect the outcome, which I thought is interesting. (laughs) But another thing I was thinking about in light of these assessments of risk aversion is coming back to your idea of uh, the effect of weekdays being an effect of cumulative fatigue. I mean, I wonder how that would play into risk tolerance as expressed throughout the week. Does like, okay, could it be that being (laughs) progressively more tired as you go through the week and getting to Thursday, you've, you've most likely had the most nights in a row where you didn't get as much sleep as you wanted, where you were trying to pack things in and, and, and get through the days that came before. Could that somehow express itself in terms of what kind of risks you're willing to take by Thursday? And then maybe some kind of mood effect takes over on Friday that overwhelms that fatigue. Right. And then likewise, if if it if you're more uh, prone to lose sleep over the weekend, would you have uh, have this sort of scenario playing out, uh, uh, you know, moving into Monday where, yeah, mm-hmm. you didn't you didn't get a lot of sleep last night and the night before. Uh, and uh, here you are catching up. Another question I have is I wonder about interactions between uh, between risk aversion as expressed over different days of the week and our feeling of freedom about what we get to do on on each day of the week. So, like, how is your risk aversion affected by it being a day where that is full of tasks that are not really up to you? You just have to do them versus on a day where you can do whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can imagine a scenario in which, yeah, you haven't really had much in the way of choice. So now I have the choice to to take a risk. Well, maybe I'm going to take it. I don't know. It kind of comes back to the what we're talking about, though, is that yeah, there's seems like there's a fair amount of noise in any of these considerations, and and so much just uh, room for subjective interpretation. You know, it's just going to vary so much depending on what an individual's uh, life structure happens to be. Right. So if the pattern holds up, I do think that's really interesting with this Thursday thing, but uh, I'm I'm not convinced of any particular explanation yet. Yeah. But this does just make me want to like, I don't know, do, do BART tests on myself all, you know, all, <laughs> all the time, figure out what's, uh, what's going on in my brain. I guess it's hard to, I don't know, I guess knowing what I'm testing for would affect the outcome. So I can't really do that, but I want to BART myself. <laughs> Well, there's got to be a good pen and paper kind of BART scenario you can use. Well, I'd still know that I was taking the test and I couldn't like, you know, do it blinded. But yeah, Mm. in any case, I do hope that risk tolerance researchers use BART as a verb the way we have been doing. I BARTed BARTed 25 participants today. (laughs) 
You know, I haven't had a chance to really uh, research this, but it looks like there there are a few um, balloon analog wrist task uh, tests, BART tests that you can find online. Uh, though I will warn you that the one I clicked on it had some really loud sound effects. I don't know that we really need uh, a loud air hissing sound effect every time I pump up the money balloon. Oh, it only works if it's deafening pops. <laughs> pops and pumps. Okay, I think maybe we got to call this episode here and then come back yeah. later this week. That's right. We'll have more to discuss about the seven-day week. Uh, we'll get into some more, and probably some expected territory concerning more historical data. We'll probably get into some unexpected uh, areas as well concerning the seven-day week period. Obviously, we'd love to hear from everyone in the meantime. Uh, we've already been hearing from a number of people about uh, these episodes, so keep it coming. Uh, we'll remind you that our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind publish on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Monday, we do listener mail. Wednesday is a short-form artifact episode. And on Friday, that's our time to do Weird House Cinema, where we set aside most serious concerns and just focus on a strange film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback, Feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you.